You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have them sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as many as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately... The boat was at land, the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us for our dim eyes, our dense minds, our dark hearts. That looking at your glory, your beauty, your truth, having such a wealth of testimony as to your Son, That even in the reading of your word, we can immediately walk away not mindful of our Lord. Father, by your Spirit, draw our eyes to Jesus now. We are your clumsy servants, Father, stumbling about, but we come to you. You have the words of life. There's nowhere else we can go. So we plead, knowing there's sure mercy in your Son. Strengthen our faith. 
that we might honor Him. In Christ's name I pray, amen. The Gospel of John is a loaf of bread that naturally breaks into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 12, is known as the book of signs. So called because central to it are seven signs, seven wonders, signifying who Jesus is and why He has come. The second half of John focuses intensely on the last days of Jesus and those days following His resurrection. It doesn't record one sign save the sign of signs, the death and resurrection of our Lord, the destruction and rising of the temple of His body, chapter 2, 19 through 22. The point of this gospel focuses on these signs. Chapter 20, John tells us Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In our text today, we have the fourth and the fifth signs. And the fifth seems to interrupt the flow of the fourth. Within the book of signs, chapter 5 began what is known as the festival cycle. It runs from chapters, chapter 5 all the way to chapter 10. It's so-called because the festival cycle centers around four feasts. The cycle begins, chapter 5 and verse 1, with an unnamed feast. Here we are in Galilee, but we're anticipating the Passover, verse 4. In chapter 7, we return to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, 7 and verse 2. And then finally in chapter 10, we have the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, chapter 10 and verse 22. So these chapters, you have four feasts, and you have four signs that are intertwined together, and they're fraught with conflict between Jesus and the Jews. These feasts are to be a celebration of God's redeeming covenant love, and everything they anticipated has come in fullness and is present before them, and they rail against it. While celebrating the feast, they hate everything that the feast is about. They are the children of those who wandered in the wilderness. Manna has fallen from heaven right before them, and they grumble. In chapter 5, Jesus healed the invalid man. And then we have this long discourse that follows explaining the significance of what's happened. And you have this pattern, sign significance. Work, then words. But here, the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 and the significance that Jesus unpacks, the, inner, the, the uh, conflict that ensues related to that sign with Him and the Jews is interrupted by the fifth sign of Jesus walking on the water. So, why is that? Are these two signs linked together. Yeah, it's just chronologically sequential, and it explains how we get from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other with the same crowd being addressed, but that only relocates the question. 
Why does the Father providentially line it out that it's at this juncture that Jesus walks on the sea? Why doesn't he just get in the boat with the disciples and go to the other side and then withdraw to a solitary place? Why does Jesus walk on the water here? Why does it interrupt the narrative flow that John puts before us? So keep that question in mind as we go ahead. And then also this fourth sign of walking, of, of Jesus feeding the 5,000, excuse me, this fourth sign is the only sign other than the sign of signs, the death and resurrection of our Lord. This is the only sign in all four Gospels. You can see the other accounts in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9. The fifth sign of Jesus walking on the water is in three of the Gospels, all of them except Luke. And in each instance, it immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000. But John is the only one who records this extended discourse that happens on the other side. Reading the Gospels like this, we've had very few opportunities where we've seen, uh, we've, we can harmonize John with the others. He, he rarely, there, there are times whenever he does, but it's, we call those other Gospels the synoptic Gospels because they present the similar synopsis of the Gospel. John so often is, is doing something unique. Whenever you read them together, it's very helpful not only to fill in some chronological gaps and some details to fill out the picture more. It's also very helpful to note what John and what the Holy Spirit are wanting to draw our attention to in particular. So here we see John. He's, he's telling of the same event, but he's got this different perspective and angle, as they all do, but John's is very unique. So we can see not only the unity of them with this account, but it helps draw out even more so what John in particular wants to draw our gaze towards. This fourth sign is of special emphasis. All four speak of it. But John leans heavier into it than any of the others. And he does so while his record of Jesus walking on the water is the briefest of those three that record it. We know that John is writing this because he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in His name. But what particular ways does John want to gaze our, draw our gaze towards Jesus towards that end here? And the joy of discovering that lies ahead of us. And so we go in, we begin with these two words, after this. These events take place after that previous unnamed feast where Jesus heals the invalid man. After that and before the Passover that's at hand. We're now one year from the Passover that we were looking at in chapter 2 where Jesus cleansed the temple. One year later, Another feast in between these two Passovers where we've seen Jesus acting. It's likely somewhere uh, around six months, up to six months, since the previous account in chapter 5. The Synoptic Gospels, again that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this as part of Jesus' extensive Galilean ministry. They treat it in, in great detail and depth. 
Whereas John has Jesus, the, all the action centering around Jesus, going to and from Jerusalem. The synoptic gospels are painting the story in light of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, moving south towards his passion in Jerusalem. So you can see they, they both have this unique way of telling the story. One is taking us to Jerusalem with the intensity building in that way, and the other has the interaction building as Jesus goes back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee. From the other gospel writers, we learn Jesus now withdraws at this point whenever he hears of John the Baptist being murderously executed, Mark, or Matthew 14, 13. And also that he's doing this to escape the crowds, Mark 6, 31. Now, whenever you're harmonizing the Gospels, again, to see what in particular is being emphasized, note what's omitted. And the omission is pretty striking in light of what we've seen John doing, especially recently in chapter 5. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciples have just come back from being sent out, Luke 9-2, to proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick. And they've come back and... Mark 6.31, they report to Jesus all that they had done and taught. But you remember John has and will continue to exclusively focus on the triune God's witness to himself. John mentions none of that. He's highlighting Jesus' testimony and the Father's testimony and the Spirit's testimony to Jesus by his works and his words. No mention of the disciples having come back. But that is, that's what's happened. And John, though, is wanting to draw our gaze from one sign to the next. And the Father, Son, and Spirit's testimony to Jesus by works and words. That's something of after this. Then we read Jesus went away. The synoptics bluntly tell us Jesus is seeking Solitude. He wants to be alone. John suddenly brings it out with some details. He went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's clear from all the gospel accounts what this means is Jesus' ministry was predominantly on the west side of Galilee, and he goes away to the east side. And even though he does this, a large crowd is following him, verse 2. Now that almost sounds like the discipleship that we saw in chapter 1. John declares, behold the Lamb of God. And then we read, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. A large crowd was following Jesus. By the end of chapter 1, those two have become five, and now it's a large crowd here that's following Jesus. But they're following Him because they saw the signs. And this reminds us not of the disciples in chapter 1, it reminds us of the Jews that we saw in chapter 2. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His, names when they, in his name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Following that, we see the Samaritans who believed because they heard the woman's testimony 
and they heard Jesus' words. Jesus leaving the Samaritans, coming back to Galilee, is welcomed by them, but he rebukes them saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And very soon he's rebuking this Galilean crowd, telling them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 26. They're seeking Jesus because they saw signs, and they're not seeking Jesus because they saw signs. Which is it? John is telling us that their sign-seeking is a kind of sign-blindness. They only see the signs. They don't really grasp the significance. Or whenever they do, we'll see they pervert and twist even that. Jesus rebukes their sign-seeking as sign-blindness. They want bread and not the bread of life. They want wonders, but they don't want the words. They're thin on theology and they are heavy on healing. They are the proto-gospel, prosperity gospel church. Such a crowd is following Jesus and Jesus goes on the mountain with his disciples, verse 3. You see him still. He's seeking this. He wants to be alone. The crowd is still pressing towards him. But before that interaction, John wants us to see one other detail. The Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. None of the other Gospels draw our attention to this truth. I have no doubt that John includes it for more than uh, a zeal for chronological precision. The Passover is at hand. First reason why this is here, this is a part of a series of four feasts, four signs, and conflict that ensues between him and the Jews in each of these instances. So part of it's the structural way he's telling the story. But also, with the mention of the Passover, Moses is brought to mind. And Moses' deliverance of the people of God from a foreign power and oppression. And thereafter, those people being in the wilderness... And God's provision for those who He's delivered from that foreign oppression, His provision for them of manna in the wilderness. Jesus is now sitting down with His disciples. He lifts up His eyes. He sees this large crowd. And Mark adds, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 6, 34. So Jesus moved with compassion towards them. He turns to Philip and He asks, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Philip's the natural one to ask because he's from Bethsaida. He's native to this eastern side. He would know where. Now, all the synoptics have this interaction happening with the disciples as a group. Philip is representative of the group. He's asked in particular, but that the others are involved is clear because Andrew feels free to pipe in. And the, the instructions for dealing with this problem are given to all the disciples. But only in John do we have this question directed towards Philip. Where? Where? 
And Jesus' question sounds a lot like Moses's in Numbers 11, 13. Where am I to get meat to give all this people? Where? But whereas in Numbers, you have Moses lamenting. We might even see, say Moses testing God. Here we have Jesus testing his disciple. Where? And oh, that Philip had been meditating recently on Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel could have taught Philip how you answer such a question when it comes from the Lord. The prophet of old was asked, Son of man, can these bones live? And he answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Lord, you know. The question's being directed towards Philip as though he's some kind of authority. And we like that kind of thing that encourages our ego. But the disciples' posture should be one of constant humility. Our Lord does not need our expertise. Lord, you know. Jesus asked where, we are told, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 6. Philip has forgotten that he too, just as Ezekiel, is being asked by the one who is the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh Himself. Incarnate, yes, but Yahweh, none the less, not the least, in the bit for His being incarnate. And it's that detail, that singular word test, that I think begins to inform you why it is that we have this seeming speed bump of Jesus walking on the water in between here and there. Who witnessed the fifth sign of Jesus walking on the water? The disciples. And the disciples alone. It's on the other side of the sea that we're told that many of the disciples, upon hearing of Jesus' hard saying, turned back and no longer walked with Him, verse 60. And so Jesus then turns to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And this time it's Peter who speaks, representing the group. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He tests Philip's faith. He tests his faith. Then he tests it, as it were, through the storm. It's tried by water. It comes out refined and more pure on the other side. And he asks it on that instance. And Peter, speaking for the group, says, We know you are the Son of God. These signs, this is, this is why this particular part of John is really beautiful and powerful. We've seen its beauty and its glory as we've been longing for others to hear of it. And they don't believe in Jesus. And we've been crying out, God, grant them faith. And grant me a zeal to share the gospel that's the power of God into salvation. To speak of these signs who testify to who Jesus is that they might see and believe. 
That's happened again and again. And I know your faith has been strengthened thereby, but here, here you begin to see it is an explicit intent that John has for these words is that our faith, the faith of the saints would be strengthened by looking at these signs, knowing who Jesus is, knowing why He's come, and coming out on the other side with all of our stumbling and fumbling obedience and responses to God knowing He is leading us along just as these disciples, drawing our attention back to Him so that we confess more truly, more purely, more faithfully, You are the Christ, the Son of God. Where else can we go? These signs are not just to sow faith, they are to grow faith. Saints, we may not seek signs like the crowd, But how often is it that we fail to even see the signs at all? You're not seeking Jesus for some ulterior motives, but are you seeking Him at all? Are you you looking out at this world through the problems, through the needs, through the pains, through the eyes of faith? Are you looking at them pragmatically? Are you looking at the scourge of abortion and you're thinking that our hope is because some decision is made in Washington? Or are you thinking, looking with the eyes of faith and saying, Lord, you know. And the only hope is hearts bowing before your supremacy. And if it doesn't happen at that grassroots level, it's just a flip that men are switching. The disciples are following Jesus here. But they've forgotten. He's not just their Lord. He is the Lord. The one whom we follow is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God through whom all things were made. He is Lord. Jesus as asked Philip where, and you notice Philip replies with how. Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little A denarius was a day's wage for a poor man, which most of this crowd no doubt was. 200 denarii would be about eight months' wages. Wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a morsel. So Philip is saying, why worry about where when how is infeasible? These were the very disciples who saw Jesus turn water into wine. And so, as the words begin to come from Andrew's mouth, you might be hoping he's remembering this. Turned water into wine. There's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. Barley was the poor man's bread, the well-to-do, preferred wheat. Particular word for fish here refers to cooked fish. It's 
It's only used a handful of instances in John alone. At the beginning, well, here near the beginning and at the end. It probably is telling us that these are some kind of cooked, salted fish. They're small, they're a snack, something of what we would equate as a sardine. This is a poor boy's lunch. If only Andrew had stopped with that. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. How beautiful his answer would be. But whereas Philip answers with despair, Andrew answers and then just thinks his answer is silly. What are they among so many? And yet there's this. The word boy here is really unique. Only used here in the New Testament, this particular word for boy. It is used a handful of times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's used a handful of times there, and in an episode that we hear all kinds of echoes here of. Elijah, whenever he fed the 100 men with the 20 loaves of bread, we read in 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley. Barley would be the first fruits, wheat later on. 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat, but his servant, and the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uses the word you have, boy, same word. His boy said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of Yahweh. Yes, Andrew, 5,000 is more than 100. Yes, five loaves is less than 20. But Jesus is far greater than Elisha. Even the crowds will soon recognize it, saying, not that he is a prophet, but he is the prophet. Having failed the test miserably, Jesus proceeds to give them the correct answer. And while the disciples may be dull students, they are obedient students. Through their direction... In obedience to Jesus, the people are made to sit down. Mark and Luke make plain what this... It's understood what they're they're doing. They're organizing the people. Mark and Luke tell us they made them to sit in groups of 100s and 50s. They're organizing the people. Jesus is instructing them to do so. And it's only now that you get a sense of the size of the crowd... There were 5,000, some 5,000 men. Add in women and children and you're looking at a figure upwards of 20,000. So here you have Jesus giving these instructions, this large 
group of people, it's reminiscent of the people encamped in the wilderness around the tabernacle, except this time they're gathered around the true tabernacle. God tinted in their midst. They're being organized. And those details take on further significance as John tells us that they desire to make Jesus king. The king dwelt in the middle tent in their midst. They desire to make him king and they're organized as a camp, as a fighting force. 5,000 men. Yeah, this is the way normally they would take account of the size of a crowd, 5,000 men. But whenever it's 5,000 men, plus all these other details, this is a nice-sized guerrilla force for an uprising, and they typically happened in the wilderness. The people organized. Jesus takes the loaves, He gives thanks, and He distributes them. And they're distributed, and distributed, and distributed. It goes from one group of 50, to the next group of 50, to a group of 100, to another group of 50. The bread seemingly behaves as some kind of viral cellular mitosis with five becoming 10, 10, 20, 20, 40, 40, 80. Long has this sign been designated the feeding of the 5,000. That is far too mild a designation for so mighty a miracle. Feeding the 5,000, now the crowd was much, much larger and fed is even too tame a word for what's happening here. When they said 5,000 men, it communicated a crowd much larger. We're not told that Jesus simply fed them. They didn't get that morsel, a little, as Philip was speaking of. No, verse 11 so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, so as much as they wanted, when they had eaten their fill. Jesus filled the 5,000 plus, plus, plus. At lunch... You remember Boaz beckoned Ruth and he told her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And the narrator adds, so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. Israel's kinsman redeemer is in their midst and oh, that they would have eyes infatuated by him. So that they would plead, spread your wings over me. Enter into covenant. Take me as your own. That they would stand in all now, not of the bread, but of the bread of life and find their satisfaction in him. Sinner, sometimes Jesus will be presented as you come to Jesus for this. Come to Jesus for this. Come to Jesus for Jesus. 
Come to Jesus for forgiveness so that you might be drawn close to God. Come to Him for justification so that you might enjoy adoption as a child. Come to Him to be made new so that you might be a temple indwelt by the Spirit. It being recognized that the crowd had eaten their fill, Jesus then instructs the disciples to go gather the leftover fragments. Why does he do this? Well, verse 12, so that there will be none left over. This is standard, so that nothing may be lost. This is just standard ancient hospitality practice. You didn't waste food, especially among those who would eat barley loaves. It was, this was precious. This was life. So this is... This is ordinary, but this is not an ordinary occasion. It's, it, that's all true. This is the normal answer, but this is not simply a normal situation. They gather 12 baskets of fragments, one for each of the disciples, one for each of the tribes. For the new Israel gathered in this wilderness, it's being conveyed to them Jesus is all they need and more. He is the one greater than Moses. He is indeed the prophet. They see this. They exclaim, this is indeed the prophet. It really makes me wonder, did they not just see the bread in the wilderness, but they saw, wait a second, 12 baskets? This is indeed the prophet. The one Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18, like him. They not only see the sign, they see something of the significance of it, and they grasp it. They want it. Unlike the Jews who saw the healing of the invalid man and heard Jesus unpacking something of the significance of that. They understood it, but they hated it. These Jews understand it and they want it. But they want it in a wrong way. They see the wilderness. They see Israel. They see the bread. They likely, I think, see the twelve baskets. They see the prophet But like Israel of old, they have bread and they demand yet more. They grumble. They want. While they get some things right, that they're getting something wrong is seen and that Jesus now perceives that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Verse 15. These Jews are both sign-seeking and king-making. They want a king they can wield. They have followed Jesus, and now they're ready to force Jesus. The forcing exposes their following as false. Kingship was neither theirs to give, nor Jesus's to lack. Their actions are eerily similar to Satan's in the wilderness. 
the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Matthew 4, 8 through 11. So like Satan, this crowd is offering Jesus a crown without a cross, but in exchange, they want a king on a string. One theologian commented, He who is already king has come to open his kingdom to men, but in their blindness men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. Thus they fail to get the king they want and also lose the kingdom he offers. Men do not make Jesus king. King Jesus is the one who made men and he remakes men. Some foolishly speak as though there were two tiers of Christians. The way you often hear this is, you may have trusted Jesus as your Savior, but have you made Him your Lord? We do not make Jesus Lord. And those whom He saves, He owns. We don't make Jesus Lord. In our salvation, we confess Him as Lord. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Saints, though we do confess this, how often do we deny our confession and we try to, as these crowds do, manipulate our Lord to try to use his lordship for our desires to get a little more bread instead of the stumbling obedience of the disciples it'd be good sometimes to see more of that in ourselves than this kind of manipulative approach that the crowd demonstrates we desire Jesus to be a specific kind of king rather than yielding to be his desired kind of disciples. But those whom he owns, he leads along. He tests their faith. He refines it, as we see with the disciples here. Perceiving this kind of heart, Jesus, verse 15, he withdraws. Why? Because he's king, he's in control. That's clear, but he does so, we're told, again. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is, his, this is a habit. This is a custom. And Matthew makes it plain what Jesus is about. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So, Jesus as Lord dismisses the crowds, sends his disciples, and then as the Christ, as the Son, he withdraws to commune with his Father. And it's now that our interactions between Jesus and this crowd are interrupted by the fifth sign. A sign that only disciples witness, a sign that testifies He's Lord of creation. Because of the topography of the Sea of Galilee, 
it was prone to sudden violent storms and squalls. Four of these twelve are seasoned fishermen. These are their native seas. And as Jesus sent them away before evening, and it's morning whenever they reach land, the synoptics make that clear, they've been driven off course significantly by this storm. Mark informs us when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land, Mark 6.47. The ESV falls rather flat there. The Christian standard gives you much more of the color of the situation. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Other translations rightly have instead of out on the sea, they were in the midst of the sea. So it's in the middle of the night and they are in the middle of the sea in the midst of a storm. Unlike that earlier instance, though, in Mark 4, Matthew 8, Luke 8, where Jesus was asleep in the ship and he stills the storm, unlike that instance, there's no record here in any of the Gospels of the disciples being afraid. We don't read of this is a significant storm, it's exhausting them, it's keeping them from getting to land, but we've got no indication that Matthew, uh, that Mark... Uh, um, and Peter, and John, and James, who know the sea. We've got Andrew, not Mark. Andrew, Peter, James, and John. We've got no indication that these four fishermen are, are, are terrified, and thus everyone else is terrified. This is something maybe that they've known, they've experienced. They're exhausted, but they're not afraid for their lives like they were in that previous instance. No, the fear sets in, verse 19 when they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. To assuage their fears, Jesus says, It is I, do not be afraid. Think, Jesus has tested them, and now he says, It is I, believe. It's true that Jesus' words can be taken exactly in this way. It is I. In any normal situation, that's exactly all that we should think by the, by the words he uses here in the original language. This is not a normal situation again. The Amplified Bible gives you the stricter translation, alternative interpretation. So first it says, Jesus said to them, it is I, be not afraid. Then the bracketed statement, I am, stop being frightened. The words there that they strictly translated are, I am. And it can have the sense of, it's me. But in the Old Testament, Yahweh alone walked on the waters. Yahweh alone was Lord of the storm. There are a number of passages we could look at, but two psalms in particular 
have some striking parallels. Psalm 77, 16 through 20. When the waters saw you, O Yahweh, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen, and you led your people by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So this imagery of sea and storm and Yahweh walking on the water is wed to his deliverance of his people through the Red Sea. This idea is repeated in the 107th Psalm. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of Yahweh, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. They cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven." Through troubled waters, he brings them to their desired haven, leading them like Moses and Aaron. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Rather than a singular wonder, the disciples witnessed three Jesus walked on the water. The storm was stilled. And immediately they arrived at their desired haven. This sign, and it's being linked to the previous one, and to the disciples' faith, that that's that's what's happening here is made crystal clear in Mark. He got into the boat with them, And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And whenever he asked Philip here, it means Philip didn't understand about the healing of the invalid men. Philip didn't understand about the water being turned into wine. And all the other signs that he had seen. Jesus is testing them, though, not only exposing their faith, and ref- but refining their faith so that that's, as Mark said, they, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. But Matthew tells us something of what's happening because of this sign. Matthew 14, 33. And those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. But John waits until the interaction with the crowd and the disciples, many of them, leaving him. And Jesus asking, what will you do? Will you do likewise? John waits until all the way on the other side of the sea, on the other side of that discourse, 
to get to the same point of the result of the disciples' tested faith. As Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And it's with such a confession that Jesus brings them and us to our desired haven. The, pl- the place where our faith is anchored. Him. The desired haven not of eating earthly bread, but of partaking of the bread of life. This gospel is written for faith that the man Jesus is the Christ, the eternal and only begotten Son of God, taken on flesh for our salvation. It is written not only to sow the seed of faith in the barren hearts of unbelievers, it is written to cultivate and encourage the growth of faith, the established faith of those who are His disciples. Saints, by these signs your faith is meant to grow. Look with the eyes of faith on Christ and then look out with the eyes of faith on this world. If you see the signs, you're then meant to see with faith. Do not forget that your Lord is the Lord. Lord of creation. We walk by faith, not by sight. We do not walk by the darkness of this world, but by the light of the Word incarnate and His written Word testifying of Him. He is the bread of life. He is all that we need. He's all that the new Israel of God, the true Israel of God need. We find all our satisfaction in Him. The bread come from heaven. He is the prophet of God. The one who establishes the new covenant by His blood and draws us near to Christ. The fulfillment of all the sacrifices and of the priesthood and of the tabernacle. He is the only begotten. He is the Son of God. And we are wed to Him in union by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive our stumbling obedience. Forgive our our false manipulative kind of seeking of You. Grant a faith that recognizes You not simply as our Lord, but as the Lord, a humble faith concerning ourselves and a bold faith concerning You. Lord Jesus, lead us along, drawing our gaze constantly towards You, testing our faith, refining our faith, so that we might confess to Your glory You are the Christ, the Son of God. Where else can we go? In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.